Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. Henrik is the executive director of Sisters in Crime. This week on the podcast, I'm delighted to welcome Kate Flora. The author of 21 books and many short stories, Kate's been a finalist for the Edgar, Anthony, Agatha, and Derringer Awards. She won the Public Safety Writers Association Award for her nonfiction and twice won the Main Literary Award. Her most recent books are Death Comes Knocking and A World of Deceit and a short a story collection, Careful What You Wish For, Stories of Revenge, Retribution, and The World Made Right. Kate writes in many different genres, including mystery, nonfiction, true crime, and romance. She was president of Sisters in Crime from 2002 to 2003. Welcome, Kate. Well, it's lovely to be here, Julie. It's lovely to see you. And as I'm always happy to talk about Sisters in Crime. So I, I'm so glad that we're going to have this conversation. Well, let's start there. Let's talk about Sisters in Crime. You were the president from 2002 and 2003, but, but your um, relationship with the organization started earlier than that. So can you tell us a little bit about your history with the organization? Well, and two things sort of, you know, came together very nicely. When I was <laughs> finally moving from the unpublished writer's corner after 10 years into the I'm about to be published writer's corner, my publisher told me that I should go to a, I think it was about your con, go to a conference and meet people and get them to, you know, become my friends so that I could get them to blurb my first book. So I went to Omaha, Nebraska. And uh, to a to a conference. For, for, it was the first time I'd met my agent. It was the first time I'd met my publisher, and I met all these wonderful people. And one of the wonderful people that I met at one of these co- you know co- conference cocktail parties was a woman who said, "If you're going to be a woman writer in the mystery field, you need to join Sisters in Crime." And you know. That was like the best advice that you can possibly get. So I came home and found my local chapter of Sisters in Crime. And we were, you know, we were very small back in those days. New England has, as you know, because you're one of us, just the most vibrant, amazing chapter um, yes. of, the, of the, what is it, about 50 chapters that we have. Almost and 60 now. Almost 60 now. That is so wonderful. <laughs> I was a chapter liaison for a while, and I just think it's the coolest thing to, to see our chapters and meet our chapters. Um, so I came back and I joined the, the little New England Sisters in Crime and very quickly discovered that one of the real amazing benefits of belonging to a great chapter is that, you know, it's a sisterhood. So we quickly, there was, they were beginning to start a speaker's bureau and I got very involved in the speaker's bureau and did a lot of promotion to libraries and community groups and schools. And we started sending, you know, panels of authors out to speak. And one of the things that the panels of authors did which is so incredibly valuable when you're just, you know, a newbie and you don't know anything, is we would organize the panels so that there would be 
experienced authors with the newbies. And I always think of it as sort of like climbing a very steep hill and there's always somebody there to reach down a hand and help you up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that would almost be, you know, the metaphor for sisters in crime in general. But, you know, so if I did something, I would do it with Barbara Shapiro, who was just one step ahead of me. And afterwards, you know, you get feedback, you know, don't talk so generally, you know, be sure you give good information and answer people's questions. But also remember that you're out there to promote your work. Yeah. You know, and so you know, there was just a tremendous amount of support and sisterhood coming from, you know, the people who had gone before. And then, you know, and so I just got more and more involved and sort of took over the speaker's bureau and took over the newsletter, took over the, you know. <laughs> but I mean, I'm not a type A, I'm really a type B plus, but I'm always stepping on the backs of other people's shoes. So. <laughs> but sometimes, you know, there were voids to be filled and I found myself filling them. But yeah, you no, know, so it's, 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 I've always been an, a real cheerleader for who we are and what we do, because I think it's a very rare thing in the world of published authors to have an organization that is so supportive, so uncompetitive, and so completely behind the notion that a rising tide floats all of our boats, you know? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you um, were, uh, you know, a major part of the growth of the New England chapter. Um, you were one of the people who started at the New England Crime Bake, which is a conference that the Sisters in Crime New England chapter and the MWA New England chapter um, co-sponsor. Um, but you're also, you were on the national board and you were um, president. So how did that come about? Uh, by accident, I'm sure. You know, I mean, <laughs> But the, the, I always, you know, you're never quite sure whether it's because you were the last woman standing. But, you know, I, they, it was one of those things. I had been the chapter liaison. Mm -hmm. uh, and that and, and, and that was when we had just begun to really do a lot of outreach to our chapters. So we it created a tiny budget so we could go and visit chapters in different parts of the country and sort of began to collect materials so that we could say to a chapter that was new or was looking for ideas, this is what such and such a chapter has done to promote themselves or promote their speakers bureau, or this is what a newsletter looks like, or these are some of the ideas for programs that other chapters have used. And, you know, that's really exploded now. But back then, those were new yeah. things that we were doing. And we had little notebooks and carried them around and said, look at this, look at that. Look at the public publications, look at how, you know, various chapters are promoting their published members and educating their pre-published or unpublished. Nobody wants to be unpublished. So we say pre-published yeah. and <laughs> members. And, you know, and so somehow or other that led, who knows how these things happen, to being vice president. And then it led to being the president. And it was an anniversary year. It was really an exciting time to be president. And then, you know, and then I retired, but I still miss it. I mean, I still think it would be really fun to be back on the national scene because, you know, it's always changing and it's always exciting. It is always changing. And there has been um, so much, uh, you know, change in this last year because of the pandemic, but some of it's been good as far as going online and being able to do things. But, you know, visiting chapters and 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 uh, organizing that structure must have been a challenge for you. I mean, that that's a big job. Well, 
You know, if you don't know what you're doing, Julie, it's an awful lot easier to take on these jobs because you haven't any concept of the scope of the job. It's kind of like, oh, let's do this. It's how the crime bank came about, you know, really. Yeah. We should have our own conference in New England. We have so many writers. And, you know. From that came um, this. And the crime bank is a wonderful conference, you know. It is a wonderful conference. Um, it really is. Uh, and having been both an attendee and um, somebody who's helped work, it, it is a it. lot yeah, of work absolutely. to pull these things off. Um, but one of my favorite crime bake uh, memories was as a very new writer who didn't know anybody and going to the second crime bake. And um, you were one of the organizers and they had run out of toilet paper and the heat wasn't on. So you were <laughs> handing out toilet paper to everyone in line. And I went home and called my mother, who was a fan of your books, and said, you're never going to believe oh, yeah. well, you know, <laughs> who the bathroom was, monitor was. <laughs> but it was all hands on deck, right? I mean, that was, there were, there were an awful lot of innovations, as I recall, at that second conference. There was uh, Janet Ivanovich, who just had a facelift and a bad cold, and said, but don't I look cute? And uh, and there was the New Hampshire medical examiner who gave her a presentation in a ball gown because, after all, it was a formal presentation. And then there was the no heat, no toilet paper. And, you know, there, and then there was the, uh, I think, the forensics expert who failed to show up. And so three of us who happened to all be wearing black leather got together and just did a completely extemporaneous panel on I can't even remember what now that, you know, worked really very well because if there's one thing that, I think you can say about our chapter and you can say about women crime writers generally is that we play well with others. Yeah, we do. We get it done. We get it done. So let's talk about your writing journey. Why, when did you decide I want to write a book as a, you know, I'm sure you're a reader and all those, but when did you sort of say, I want to write a book? Probably at about age 12, you know, but, but of course I had the, hateful college writing instructor that everybody had, you know, and just as a little aside, those people are so damaging that when I teach adult writing classes, um, I teach a class called I've Always Wanted to Write But, and one of the goals of that class is to stick Band-Aids on the people who've been wounded. You know, yeah. I really believe that, that, that there's a lot of damage can be done. But anyway, an undergraduate English major wasn't very useful. And even though I wanted to be a writer and, you know, and, you know, dreamed of it as I was, you know, growing up on a chicken farm in a small Maine town, I um, I knew that really my job was to get a job. And so I, and, and basically, you know, the feminist that I was to get a job that they told me I couldn't have. So I went to law school. <laughs> <laughs> and it was only after I'd done the law school thing and practiced law for a while and had two small children at home that I decided to take some time off from practicing law and sort of then sort of froze in place and said, but I've always wanted, and, you know, but I've always worked. I've worked since I was 13. What am I going to do? Not realizing how much time those two small people would take. And I said, okay, so um, this is a wonderful opportunity to see if I can write a book. Yeah. And yeah. I did. I wrote a book. <clears throat> I wrote several books that live in the drawer or else I say they live in a safe, which is wrapped in chains and cement <laughs> at the bottom of the sea. <laughs> and I uh, and then I then spent 10 years or 
eight years before I sold my first book and two waiting it to be published in the unpublished writer's corner. So mm-hmm. I have enormous, enormous sympathy for the suffering of those who dream and, yeah. you know, and I've been there and, but I always attribute the fact that I didn't give up and we've all seen so many people who gave up or they gave mm-hmm. up after they published one or two unsupported books and just got so discouraged that realizing the dream didn't look anything like the dream. Um, which is another reason why you have to have sisters in crime because you've got shoulders to cry on and that's great. But, you know, so I eventually sold a book. And by the time I sold the book, I had was working on the third book in that series, my Thea Kozak series. And I thought I was launched. You know, I thought this is it. I have finally, you know, gotten through. I have finally, you know, sold a book and I've got a three book contract and then I've got a two book contract. And this is the way that my life is going to be. I will spend nine months writing a book and three months promoting the book. And then I will, you know, and that, you know, went on for a while until it didn't go on anymore. And the publisher dropped the series. How many books did you have in the um, Thea Kozak series before that happened? Six. Six. Yeah. So that, of course, led me to, you know, sort of look around in deep despair and say, do I go back to practicing law? Do I... um, go out and play in traffic on Route 128 at rush hour and see if I can get run over? Or do I uh, take chances? And it turned out to be the perfect moment to take chances. And sometimes, you know, maybe think, you know, I'm not one of those people who believes everything happens for a reason. But in this case, maybe everything happened for a reason, because at the same time that the publisher dropped the series, uh, Susan Olexi said, <clears throat> we've been talking about doing a short story collection as a snapshot of the New England crime writer's mind. Would you like to come on as an editor? So Level Best Books was born. Uh, I started thinking, well, you know, I've been going running in and out of various police agencies over the six books in the Thea series, trying to understand how the police work. So, and I'm really fascinated by their lives. And so maybe I could write a police procedural. And it turned out to be a huge jump from writing, you know, a strong woman, which having gone to law school when I did, and I, you know, I'd learned a little something about that. Uh, But now I was going to write middle-aged male cops. And I know zero about that except for these little visits where I would run in and say, can you show me a bulletproof vest or can you tell me about this or that or whatever? So, uh, but I decided to do it. And that led me down a really interesting road that I had never intended to travel because not only did I meet, I I decided to set the book, the series, the Joe Burgess series in Portland, Maine. So I had to go meet people in the Portland Police Department where, you know, the head, the lieutenant in charge of CID became my go-to guy for, you know, all things cop. And I became his go-to girl for all things writing. And we became really good friends. And then he had a very unusual murder to investigate. And his, I want to write came to the fore and he said, you know, things are happening in this case that have never happened before. Usually, you know, it was a joint state police and local police investigation. Usually they were very territorial and somehow all the territorial barriers got swept out of the way because of who their victim was. And he was seeing some very unusual policing and some very unusual sort of attachment between the investigators and their victim. And he said he wanted to write about it. And I, you know, gave him all this great advice about what he should do. 
and he took my advice and wrote all these things down. But a year later, he was still saying, someday I'm going to write about it. And I got tired of listening to him and called him up and said, you know, maybe we should do this together. Yeah. This is part of the story of my writing career in which I start, I'm always doing things I have no idea what I'm doing, but maybe none of us ever do, right? So I embarked on writing a true crime, co-writing, which, you know, we writers are relatively solitary people. We're not, you know, we play well with others, but we really like to be all alone in our rooms where people in our heads are talking to us. And suddenly here I am collaborating with this person that I don't, he's a friend, but I don't know him well. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to do it. (laughs) And suddenly I'm writing nonfiction. Which is a different genre completely. completely different, yeah. And but you focused on when you know in your writing career you are um, well we'll talk about the romance but but how did you decide I'm going to start writing mysteries were your are your draw books or the books in the bottom of the ocean um, all mysteries everything as well is, everything is either mystery or suspense or domestic suspense uh, how did I decide to well I think that what happened and you know. You've, you've probably heard this before, Julie, but not everyone has, that when I was working, when I was practicing law, the kind of law that I was doing were uh, child support enforcement, deadbeat dads, battered children, um, you know, all kinds of employment discrimination, all kinds of ways in which people in the world with power over others were behaving badly. And I really, you know, I was, I got very, very curious about, you know, the question of good and evil and what it is that makes people decide to allow themselves to deviate from the social contract that we've all bought into, that makes the world work. That, you know, and after I watched all of these people lying and cheating and stealing and misbehaving and so forth, uh, I think it was a really natural segue into crime writing. You know, because when you're th- when you're when you're doing that, you can't help but wonder what shaped these people. What is their thinking like? What are their characters which allow them to you know sort of flagrantly do bad acts mm-hmm. to treat people badly? And of course, murder is the ultimate bad act. So, you know, I think it 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 really was an outgrowth of practicing law. Yeah, it's very interesting outgrowth for sure, and it has taken you on many different paths. I'm afraid um, so. I'm waiting for something new to pop up, you know. <laughs> well, and you've touched on this, but you're also, um, you teach, you teach writing, and, you know, at Grub Street and other places. And so um, I, for yourself as a writer and also as a teacher, what are the best and worst pieces of advice you've either gotten or, or well, I'm not going to ask you for the worst piece of advice you've given, but you touched earlier on the damage that can be right. done on somebody who shuts you down, which happened to me, um, took me a long time to get over. Um, but but what's the what are the best and the worst pieces of advice you've gotten? And, you know, what do you really want your students to know when you teach them about writing? Uh, well, I... <laughs> the worst piece of advice I ever got, and I, you know, it, you know, it just sticks in your head, is if you're writing, when you reread, when you're writing something, the passage that you've written made makes you cry, and when you reread it, it still makes you cry. You should cut it. And I think if you've done it well enough, so it still has an impact on you the second time or third time around, you've done it well. 
So yeah. I, you know, I absolutely disagree with that as worst pieces of advice. Um, the best piece of advice, I don't know. I mean, my mother and everybody else, it seems, but my mother in particular always said, put your seat in the seat and keep it there. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, sort of have expanded that when I talk to people about writing to say, you know, if you wait for the fluttery little muse to come down and land on your shoulder and whisper the magic words in your ear, um, you, you know, you're, you're not going to get your work done. Um, you know, and, and, and an outgrowth of that is that, you know, when I used to do a lot of bookstore events, which, you know, one hasn't done for a while, you know, people would often come up to me and say, you know, I've always wanted to write a book. And sometime when I have a free weekend, I'm going to write one. <laughs> and, you know, and the corollary of that is the people who say, well, I always wanted to write, but I tried it once and it was hard. Yeah, it is. If it's worth doing, most of the things that are really worth doing are hard. They're challenging. They take a lot out of us. They demand things from us. And that's absolutely okay. Yes. The, um, yes. The, the, bit, the piece of advice I probably, you know, give to people, um, to my students, you know, I give my students an awful lot of pieces of advice and I haven't taught for a while, but I still remember these, uh, are basically only you get to decide that you're a writer. You know, I mean, we're waiting for the imprimatur, we're waiting for the agent, we're waiting for the publisher, we're waiting for them to tell us, you know, to, to tell us that we're writers because they're willing to buy our book. But because the, I mean, the publishing industry is hard and it can take a long time and you may never be a magical success, you have to get your joy from the writing and you have to believe in your writing. You have to believe in your work. You have to believe in yourself. You have to believe that you have a right to call yourself a writer. And it's, you know, it's really hard for people, particularly, you know, when they're just starting out. So one of the things that I do for my students, I do a lot of exercises with my students to get them to think about when they work, where they work, how they approach their work. And, and then I give them a sign. And the sign just says, not now, I'm writing. And I tell them that only they are going to know whether that sign needs to go on the outside of their workspace door to keep people away or the inside of their workspace door to keep them in the chair. But, you know. Oh, I love that. That's great. <laughs> That's so true as well. And so what's your writing process like? Are you a... Uh, you know, well, what's your writing process? Well, like? I'm not a pantser and I'm not a, uh, and I'm not a, and a, I'm not an outliner. You know, I can't remember what's the other one. The, the plotter or pantser. Plotter, right. I'm a cooker. And a cooker for me at least means that I take, you know, a bunch of ideas, a bunch of what ifs, um, you know, or who, why ifs, you know, why is this person the victim or why is this person you know, the suspect, or why is this crime, why was this crime committed? And I sort of carry them around in my head, and I think about them, and I think about them when I'm driving, which is probably dangerous, and I think <laughs> about them practically everywhere else, too, and, you know, after, it takes, you know, it's a, it's a couple month long process of sort of wondering, you know, why was this person killed, and what how were they killed, and what am I going to put at the crime scene that, you know, will be evidence or information that will ultimately lead to the solution and who wanted them, who killed them, who also wanted them dead and why. 
uh, and who my you know, protagonist is going to be and what their relationship to this crime is. Because sometimes we, I write, you know, cops and their mm-hmm. relationship is they're the investigators. But sometimes I write Thea Kozak and Thea Kozak is an, is an amateur. She's what a strong amateur female PI, and as we say in the business, and you know, so she has to have a reasonable relationship to, uh, you know, who was killed. And it's only after I've carried that around and done all this thinking that I generally sit down and start to work. Lately, I've been a little bit more casual about it. I've been in playing around with, I suppose, what's being a pantser, which is, you know, just sort of letting the story, letting the characters tell me what they're about. Right now I'm 146 pages into a book and I'm still waiting for this character to tell me why we're here. But it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of an adventure because you, know, you don't do the same thing all the time. I mean, just like I don't always write you know, strong women and I don't always write middle-aged male cops and I don't always write true crime and I don't always write memoir and I don't always, you know. Um, it's part of the adventure is waiting mm-hmm. to see where it will go next. It's exciting. That's a wonderful way to approach it as well, right? It's pretty, um, it can be pretty frustrating too, you know, when you're saying to your character, <laughs> I've just spent 12 hours with you and I have no idea why we're here, <laughs> but I have faith that you're going to tell me. Yes. Yeah. I love that uh, that imagery too around being a cooker. I think that that's a, a great way of um, of thinking about it. Um, and you, you, the co-writing, I can't even imagine how you co-write something. Neither do I. Um, <laughs> and you've done it a couple of times. I have. Do you send things back and forth yeah. or, you know, are you, because you're the, you're the writer, do you usually also take a, a role in the shaping? And oh, the- I, I, I take a major role in the shaping, yeah. but <clears throat> You know, it, and, it, and as I say, each one's going to be different. Probably the, the, my best writing story ever is, you know, telling the story of, you know, how I came to co-write a main game warden's memoir, which, you know, is, you know, not exactly what you'd expect. But he was on the searches for the hidden bodies in both Finding Amy, the first one that I worked on, and then uh, Death Dealer, which is one that I worked on up in Canada, where I was sent by the main wardens that I'd worked with on the first one. And when this warden retired, he called me up. Name is, his name is Roger Gay, and he called me up. We didn't know each other, uh, but he called up and he said, you know, I like what you did in these books. And, you know, uh, I've just retired and all my life people have told me that I'm a great storyteller and I should write a book, but I have absolutely no idea how to write a book. So, you know, I didn't tell him, none of us have any idea how to write a book, but, you know, so he said, can we talk? So he came down to the cottage and we talked and uh, it sounded to me like he had, you know, some amusing stories to tell and we could do something with that. So I told him that what he should do is get one of those handheld tape recorders and carry it in his truck. And whenever, you know, something he passed or something that happened, triggered a memory, just talk it in. And then, you know, you could get somebody to type it and eventually you'd have the makings of a book or the beginnings of a book. But months go by and I check in with him and how's it going? And he actually hasn't taken the tape recorder out of the box. And he says, well, you know, I chased bad guys for 25 years. And when the tape recorder came out, it meant that I was sitting on one side of the table and there was a bad guy on the other. I just can't seem to talk to it. So I, okay. So I said, I'll come up. We'll talk. 
So I drive up to Guilford, Maine, which is, you know, way up there in the middle of somewhere or nowhere, depending <laughs> on your point of view. And um, he's going to show me around. So we go out to get in the truck. It's me and Roger in the front. We get and his wife gets in the back with a shotgun. Now, you know, this is I don't know his wife, but there's a woman in the back seat with a gun. <laughs> And we take the recorder out of the box and the batteries have died. So we put batteries in and we start to drive and we drive dirt roads and we drive back roads and we drive hither and we drive yon. And I hold the tape recorder and he talks over the truck noise of the tires on dirt roads. And she corrects him from the back seat. And every once in a while we stop the truck and she shoots something. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how the book began. And we did, he and I did that for days without the wife and the gun in the back seat. And then I took it home and transcribed it and began to see the patterns. And then he and I would have lots of sessions where we would talk about things or he'd send me something to read and then I would follow up. And But after we had done a lot of that, and I had started out thinking that the book was, and the book is called A Good Man with a Dog because he trained dogs for search and rescue because that was a part of his job. And then he trained his dogs for finding uh, cadavers when the person they were searching for had died. And then he got working with the state police when there was a missing body. So it was, I mean, his life was quite an adventure, but I realized that what I thought were gonna be cute animal stories was really a much deeper and more serious book about what it's like to work a job where you're either dealing with catastrophe and missing people and maybe dead people, or you're dealing with a hunting population or a fishing population, uh, all of whom are armed. Mm-hmm. And you're always by yourself. I mean, it was just, and, and then the book began to evolve. And as he began to tell me more, and I began to see the undercurrents in that story, I realized that it was a story about what it's like to work a very demanding public safety job and the toll that it takes on the people who do it. So mm-hmm. we wrote a lot of cute animal stories, but there was an awful lot more to that, that book. And I was astonished, but it really just fell to me to take you know, hours and hours and hours of chat and figure out how it all came together as a book. And there was one day when I was, you know, I was, I was in Boston and I was getting into an elevator and I was looking for a way to open the story. And he had he and another warden had gone to New Orleans after Katrina, and he and and you know dealt with the horror there and finding body parts and missing people and you know dealing with that devastation. And one of the stories he told me was a day when they were working and he was guarding the truck, and they were checking out someplace whether they could let the dogs go through it. And this guy car drives down the street and stops, and a guy gets out, and he watches the guy and can tell the guy is loading a gun. And he's come there to shoot him. And I said, oh, my goodness, you know, this is the vignette. This is the story that opens the book. Yeah. So, you know, but, you know, it's it's a in, in nonfiction, in a way, writing all that fiction gave me the tools that I needed to, you know, to figure out how you tell a story that's still compelling, that has momentum, that hooks the reader, that, you know, it that's really interesting, that it makes you care. And that, you know, it was a good thing that I came to finding Amy or to this story when I did, because I would really not have known what I was doing. Yeah. 
No, it's such an interesting journey and, and such a, um, you know, again, your cooking analogy works well for, for how that came together as well. Um, you've talked a little bit about this, but, uh, you know, I'd love to touch on the publishing journey, which is so different from the writing journey. Um, and uh, is and I think people don't always understand that, that you and I love that your um, advice to claim yourself and claim your space as a writer and you make that call because if you wait for the publishing industry even or your self-publishing business to take off that's not gonna it's that's not gonna give you the clues that you need mm -hmm. um but what do you wish you'd known sooner you've you've had a, a long career so you've been through you know a lot of morphing in the uh publishing industry as well but what do you wish you knew sooner about the publishing part of the business i wish i, I mean for one thing i wish i'd known sooner more about you know, how to deal with an agent, how to use an agent, what an agent's job role is in your life and what you owe an agent and what an agent owes you. Because we were all, I think, so desperate to get agents that when we got agents, we never questioned whether, you know, this was the right choice or a good choice right. and what it would mean and uh, so forth. So I, you know, I haven't had a great agenting journey but I think that it would be really helpful. And I think we should always, always, always do a panel on agents and editors and how you deal with those and what's, you know, what, what you're kind of like, what are your rights as an author? Because I didn't know anything and most of us don't. I probably don't know anything now, but I've been doing this for a long time. Um, I think that, you know, along with that, I think it's changed so much so that now so much more. I mean, we felt like an awful lot of the marketing fell on us. And a lot of people blame Sisters in Crime for taking the time to educate writers about how to promote themselves. And then we kind of got taken advantage of by an industry that said, oh, heck, well, if they're going to do it, you know, well, that's one more thing we don't have to do. Uh, and and we constantly need to be, you know, sort of re-evaluating, re-examining that, trying to figure out. And, and I think the best advice somebody gave, you know, when you've got Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and who knows how many other podcasts and blogs and all the different ways that authors can try to communicate with readers and, and so forth. The best advice I got was do the things that you're comfortable with. Uh, the trouble, of course, for many of us is that we're basically, you know, sort of shy, retiring people, which is how we can spend 12 hours a day all by ourselves. Right. And all of the things that they tell us that we're supposed to do are hard. And I still, you know, get up every morning and say, dear Lord, please send me a millennial, a competent, <laughs> net savvy millennial. Please send me a millennial who will do my newsletter, who will figure out how to use MailChimp when it loses everything that I've ever given it, who will please tell me how I can tell the friends that I've told 35,000 times that I have a new book, that I have a new book, uh, you know, because... Yeah. You know, and people who need to see um, information. <clears throat> I think, <clears throat> I think back when I first saw my first book, the publisher told me that people need to see things eight times before they notice that it's there. <clears throat> anyway, um, you know, we we do a lot in Sisters in Crime to try and educate people about these things, and no matter how much you do, it's still an incredible challenge. It's really mm -hmm. a. a, a 
Because, you know, where do you put your energy? Do you put your energy into self-promotion? Do you put your energy into what I like to call doing the buy my book dance? And I am a terrible dancer. (laughs) Or do we put our energy into writing great books? Do we, you know, and how do you draw the line and how do you strike the balance? And, you know, it's nice to have sisters to turn to, to get some answers for that stuff. But it's just a hard part of the journey. When I sold my first book, my beloved husband, who'd been wonderfully supportive of me as an aspiring writer and all those years in the unpublished writer's corner said, congratulations, dear. Now you have two jobs. He was right. And he's he was right. right. Yeah. Um, so how would you, how, I think one of the interesting things I think about is defining success and that we need to do it in different ways as writers, as artists. And so what's your advice for folks who are emerging writers on on defining success for themselves? I don't know that I have any good advice in that corner, Julie. I would say that um, I think that we put way too much pressure on ourselves. We've all heard, you know, the, the notion that you should practice gratitude, that you should practice, do blah, blah, blah about being grateful. By the time you finally clawed your way out of the unpublished writer's corner, you don't feel grateful at all. You feel, you know, sort of, you're bruised and battered and worn. But, uh, but I think that it's, it's, it's advice that I have a hard time taking, but I think it's good advice. And I wish someone would give it to me regularly so I could remember it. And that is to appreciate what you've accomplished to appreciate the fact that you have written a book for the one book that you finished, even before you get to the 15th edit, you are so far ahead of the people who've had the book, they've been trying to write a book and they've been on page 120 for four years. Um, Appreciate the steps that you've taken and appreciate the fact that, you know, it takes courage, it takes stamina, it takes so much just to get to the first time you type the end, that magic moment. And then if you do, in fact, publish a book, (coughs) and I don't even know if we can do this or if this is just pie in the sky advice, appreciate the of your accomplishments all along the way. You know, be so excited. I mean, you're really excited when the book arrives and it lands on your dining room table and it's your baby and you just unwrap it. And, you know, I remember somebody years ago posting something about, you know, it's it's my book birthday. It's my first book. And my publisher sent me flowers and chocolates and, and you know, and, and, and nobody sent me flowers or chocolates. And I thought there should be bands playing. You know, yeah. there should be a parade in the street. This is, yeah. you know, it took me so long to get here. And and maybe uh, maybe this is where writers groups or sisters in crime or who knows what somebody you know your street band, your street team whatever <coughs> plays this very valuable role of you know you tell them this is my book birthday and they do send you cards and flowers <laughs> because celebrating the accomplishments they're big accomplishments they're real they, they are. really are and they are and 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 you know. When are you a success? Well, you know, we need to redefine success, I think, don't you? I mean, I think we, if if I'm going to compare myself to Hank, then Hank Phillippe Ryan, then I'm always going to feel like a not success. But, you know, I actually think, you know, I've got a shelf full of published books. Yes. You know? Yeah. I'm a goddess. 
Yeah. I've gotten a Lifetime Achievement Award, you know. And (laughs) and all those things are really pretty wonderful. And it's easy to lose sight of the wonderfulness in the midst of the, you know, have I done enough? Is it enough? And those are hard, hard balances to strike. We we should be talking about that more, I think. I completely agree with you. And and I also think this is why it's so good to have friends who are writers as well, because they understand in a way that um, other civilians in your life don't necessarily understand what's going on. Yeah, the neighbors who will say, Oh, how is your how's your publishing career? How's your writing going? Of course, I haven't read any of your books, but and I, you know, for for I would say about six books or eight books worth of that, I said, oh, that's okay. And now I say, you haven't. I can. Get, I'm right here at my house, and I can sell you one right. Or you can get them at the library. And if your yeah. library doesn't have them, ask your library to order. <laughs> They're under such a name. long time to be marketers, doesn't it? Um, so, Kate, this is such a great conversation, and I, you know, I'm so grateful for it and for the, you know, you've given me lots to think about. Uh, what's next for you? What are you working on, or what's the new book or next book that's coming out or you you is it your cooking project or where are you yeah i uh i'm in a very strange and interesting place right now i you know i i i wrote a really i thought terrific uh police procedural new character very very dark serial killer not my you know, even darker than my usual stuff which in the joe burgess series is very dark and uh, my agent was sure she could sell it and she marketed it and it turned out to hit, you know, the market, at least as, as I'm told, at, at, at the point where nobody was really interested in buying a book with a white male cop protagonist because they're not popular right now. So I said, OK, that's fine. I'll, you know, I've got books in the drawer. The drawer isn't full yet. And then I wrote a very strong, you know, damaged female protagonist and my agent didn't like it at all. So right now I'm sort of in the what do I do now, you know, face, but, you know, if if you've been doing this for 35 years, like I have, what do I do now is just a phase, you know? So right now I'm writing that book with the, which is, I started out to write a romance. I mean, a real straight romance, a chick flick book. I mean, a chick lit book, chick flick, right? A chick lit book. And things started getting deep. Maybe this is my fatal flaw. And so now I have no idea what I'm doing with this woman, with this book. Uh, But I'm having, you know, I decided that, you know, I'm so conflicted about I'm not doing the writing I should be doing and I'm not, you know. And so then I just decided this week that what I'm going to do is kind of a a NaNoWriMo where I just write obsessively and I don't edit and I don't think and I don't analyze. I just write and I'll see what on earth these people are up to. And it's going to be really interesting. Uh, But then, of course, I've got to write another Thea because I'm committed and I've got to write another Joe because I'm committed. And then there are all those people out there who say to me, you wrote a romantic suspense? You? Which I did. And uh, yes, you did. You did. I think I was one of those people when you talked about it. <laughs> so, you know, I I don't know. I, I I mean, if you look at the journey, the journey was meant to be right strong female protagonists that became right strong pre female protagonists and right 
damaged male cops. And then that became write strong female protagonists, write damaged male cops, edit short story collections and write short stories for those collections. And then it became write true crime. And then it became write memoir. And then it became write straight nonfiction. And at this point, honestly, who knows what the, you know, but I've been told that you're supposed to choose one thing and that becomes your platform. And I, if so, I have the wackiest looking platform anybody has ever had. It's kind of made or, up of a jumble of boxes. Or your platform is that you've, you've been writing for 35 years. You've been publishing for 35 years and that's something to cheer about and to, uh, we're all the better for it. Which is what Thank I said, you. right? I should, be, I should just appreciate this, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a huge accomplishment. Thank you so much, Kate. This has been a great conversation. Thank you, Julie. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.